As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Patty Smith, you're a staple of New York City. Will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm an artist. Rock and roll is my art. I'm a nigger of the universe. Ah, that's strong words for these holiday times, Patty. I don't give a shit, you know. I play guitar. I don't know how to play guitar, but I just get in a perfect rhythm and I play. I don't care. That sounds liberating. And I'm free because I can leap up and scream. I can put my fist up in the air. Put your fist up in the air like a monkey? <laughs> Like that? Freedom is inside of me. It means that I'm not hung up with, like, anybody's idea of how I should be. You're kind of like Santa Claus in that way. You're of us, but not among us. I'm outside of society. Just like Santa. I'm not afraid of death. I don't think Santa is either. You see the way he climbs down those chimneys? I do what I do. What I do, I believe in. I think Santa's the same way. I mean, he's kind of a burglar. He leaves presents, but he does steal your cookies. And that, to me, is the greatest thing to fear. <laughs> I don't think you have to be scared of Santa. Otherwise, I feel pretty good. Thanks for being here. Welcome to episode 15, yeah. This episode we have Mike Studo. Mike's the owner and booker of legendary New York City music venue Brownies, now called Hi-Fi on Avenue A and 11th Street. Been there since 1989. We're going to hear some rock star stories. We're going to hear a lot of therapy stuff. We're going to hear how to keep your life interesting, because there's a lot of years in life. And you can't keep doing the same thing unless you really, really love it. It's hard to love the same thing for that long, though, as uh, we're all learning. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It's my conversation with me, Matt Kaplan, and Mike Studo. Um, so you've let go of anger. 
Yeah, I think I've let go of a bunch of anger. How? Uh, um, therapy, probably, but uh, recognizing that it doesn't do anything. It takes a long time to... Well, depending. All right. Well, yeah. Buddhist. There's a Buddhist saying like, "Anger only burns yourself because you hold the anger in; and it just eats you up." That's bad. For yeah. You. Well, you don't always hold it in. Sometimes you let it out, but uh-huh. um, which is probably healthy unless you're beating up somebody. Well, it's what I what I learned, and doing something about it is a different story. But it's like, okay, so after I um, showed my anger in whatever way, after I exhibited my anger. I'm in the same place I was before, but worse, because I've alienated the person that I need to communicate with. Was this a pattern that was happening? Yeah, I guess it was. How would you um, exhibit your anger? In depending quotes? at different times. I don't know. I think sometimes I just had a mood of being angry. Yeah. You just would be like, oh, don't go, by, don't go near that guy. Mm-hmm. So people get that energy from you. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what people thought. I just kind of had to deal with it. I think so. I think we're all, we're all sensitive. We can, we can, we know when someone is not in the best mood, right? Whether it's someone you're close with or just some stranger on the subway. You know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you but know, there's a reason why you don't approach somebody, right? Because you're like, I don't want to deal with it, or you just out of, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, you never struck me as a violent person. I couldn't see you no. getting. I've both. never been in a fist fight in my life, other than like maybe in like the sixth grade or something. Yeah, that's that's a time when I think all boys guys get in a fist fight. Yeah, it was a short one. I got thrown against the wall and passed out. I was done really quick. But um, but I but I'm not a. I've never hit anything. I'm mean, just not a violent person. Did you grow up with siblings? <clears throat> one brother. One older. Younger, yeah, older. older, older. See, my brother, my older brother gave me great advice. And he said, you're going to get before sixth grade. He said, you're going to get into a fist fight and you're going to be challenged. The best thing you could do is just punch him in the face first. Yeah, it's true. I never did. I never got there, but it is true. It, I think that's how the fight started. But I kind of, he turned around and he was really big, uh-huh. like fat big. And I reached around. I hit him. I think like in the, I like kind of was swinging around his body yeah. and hit him like in the chin or somewhere or something in the side of the head. Cause kids and always then he just that. turn around and just like threw me. So and you connected and he still got you. Yeah. Cause I was tiny and he was kind of big. Ah, uh, that sucks. Uh, didn't, didn't take long. Kids wrong. always do that. Like, uh, buffing, uh, chests thing. <laughs> and like, no one wants to throw the first punch. Everyone's too scared. So if you're the one to throw the first punch, you probably will win. You could. Unless the guy's really big like you're. Yeah, he was as big. He wasn't did. a big deal. Yeah, and that, that doesn't help anger either, punching someone. No, I mean, anger is basically, I feel like anger is the result of not knowing how to process the other emotions in life. Mm-hmm. So like, you- and that, so your reaction is like, is like disgruntledness because you don't know how to deal with whatever else it is that you're feeling. So you're saying anger is a symptom of something else. If you're, if you are an angry person, I mean, sometimes you're angry because someone pushes you and there's it's incidental anger as mm-hmm. opposed to maybe internal anger. I'm not in any way. I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I sound like I'm, Equips. Like yeah, I'm talking about it like I'm some kind of expert. Like you're going to talk about my book next. You know, like, well, you said dealing you've been with in therapy. Yeah. Deal, dealing with anger by Mastudo. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Everyone should be in therapy. I agree with that. Yeah, even when it's good, even when things are good, it's good to be. It's not just about 
you know, when you're down. Yeah, it's just me. I think I I consider it just maintenance. <laughs> Unless you have a bad therapist, then it's just. Yeah, I guess if you have a bad therapist, change therapists. Just get a new one. There's so many of them. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what have you learned in therapy besides? You did the research on me. You told me what I learned. <laughs> uh, oh, I don't. I mean, I've been in therapy a long time. Um, you go, you go every week, once. Yeah, a week? just once a week, and it's conversational therapy. It's not Freudian. I'm not laying on my back like talking about my mom. Right. Yeah. Um, do they give you input, or do yeah, they just absolutely. listen? Absolutely. I want input. Sometimes I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you ask their advice, and they give you like coaching and things? It's not really do? advice. I think advice. I think people think of therapy as advice, but it's not. It's um, it's asking you the right question or pointing you in the right direction mm-hmm. at a time when hopefully, you know, what you're thinking and talking about will let you see whatever it is they they need you to see. Yeah, they lead you that. That's, that's they're trying the, to to position you to see what the patterns are that you do. Right. Most people do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And get and hope for different results, yeah. in, in relationships or in life, and you learn your and everything goes back to when you were a kid, when you were really, really young, probably everything goes back to before you were ten. I would say it I'd say before you know, yeah, before eight or nine years old, I think your basics of your and it's your the you know learning about relationships between men and women by how mm-hmm. your parents are together, right learning how to, you know, like you could have learned by watching what happens or um, if you, or early interactions, you know, everyone has the earliest and that sort of sets up your whole life. I always say like, but it's true. The best reason to stay in touch with your parents is to learn to what, what to watch out for (laughs) with yourself. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I didn't make this phrase up, but it is like, you are going to become somewhat like your parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make your peace with it because it's going to happen. Um, and and there are exceptions, of course, and there you know. But for the most part, you learn. Even though, and I feel like I was the different person in my family. My family were not artist related or music related. They mm-hmm. were very suburban. Got a job as an accountant in finance. You know, whatever. Very conservative politically. Um. You know, not big, re- not big intellectuals or readers or anything like that. And Isn't, I was sort of in this other thing. But no matter how I l- tried to shun the influence of my family on who I was, mm-hmm. I turned out. I mean, my father and I have very different worldviews, but we have very similar temperaments. And yeah, there are th- things about us that are just the. S- you know, he's dead now, but there are things about us that are just that are the same, even though we're very different people. Are it's both like, your parents gone? No, well, my mother is. My mother's has like um, a medium level of dementia, so okay. she's not. When I see her, she knows who I am, but she's not really there. My grandmother had dementia before she passed away, and she would always remember that she doesn't remember anything. <laughs> and it always confused me. I'm like, well, how do you remember that you don't remember anything? It's a very. Uh, my mother asks me every time I see her how her parents are. My mother's 82. Her parents mm. have been dead for 30 something years. And she's like stuck on it. Like, well, where did their furniture go? And what did the, you know? Oh, like the little details. She's of things. like, what happened with their money? Did we take care? Like, just, wow. At, so was I there? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you took care of them. And you, but then she'll ask me about it again 20 minutes later. So mm. it's, you know, it's weird. Uh, mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of patience, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it's, acceptance. And 
Yeah, it, the process to where it got to get to where she is now was more painful than it is. Now it's like, it's fine. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, it's sad, but what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. She's comfortable. Where That's she, part of that acceptance. You're dealing with your anger. Do, has that, was anger like uh, <clears throat> part of you growing up? Have you targeted it in therapy, where it came from or what it's stemming from? No, not that much because it isn't. Well, I mean, my therapist may disagree with me, but I think I'm not past it. You never passed everything in your life, but it's I don't I don't lash out. I don't have the mm-hmm. I, more accepting of the way things. Whatever happens, like all right, well that happened. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think just most people never learn to deal with their emotions. Like as children, you know, we just we're upset, we scream, we cry, and I think it's just really difficult as we get older to realize that like. We need to pay attention to our emotions and present them in uh, a way that doesn't screw around with everyone else around you. Well, that's what, that's one of the things I'm realizing that I love about doing stand-up is that it makes you observe yourself in a third person. It makes you observe life in the third person. So you kind of like, it helps with emotional stuff, watching your emotions, being outside of yourself. I agree that, with that. Yeah. That objectivity is really good. Yeah, that's so, why I like stand-up comedy because it is like this sort of unedited id to a certain extent. Or you can, mm. you know, stand-up comedy or writing if somebody's writing essays or mm-hmm. you know storytelling or things like that. I think they are very much like the exploration of what's going on in your head. Not the unedited knowing. id. Did you just coin that? That's good. Uh, it's but it is edited. I did coin it, but it's not an accurate. It doesn't accurately describe what I meant to say, but it's a cool phrase. It the is a cool phrase. The yeah. unedited id. It's a lot of... <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, Good it's really the edited id. The, mm-hmm. you well, know, yeah, after if, you craft it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of, but it is... Uh, well, it's kind of from what you were saying. I lost my train. That's okay. Well, it makes sense that you got into the music business being uh, an angry person. <laughs> a failed musician. Are you a failed musician? I was a drummer. I was never really a musician. Ah. <laughs> I had a drum kit. I played in a couple of bands. Like, I didn't play any bands and made original music, like cover bands in college and stuff. Mm-hmm. But as a drummer, you can always get with bands. I you mean, could. I just I crashed my car and had to sell my drum set to fix it and then never kept playing. And then that was over. Okay, so let's go back. Drums are also like having a drum kit and being able to practice it when you're young, like in your 20s. Like, mm-hmm. where do you do that if you have a drum kit? Like, you know, you're living in an apartment trying to have a job. You could, it was even then I couldn't do it. So yeah. I just kind of, you know, I got much more interested in the music business and started doing that. Is that what you studied in college? <laughs> I, I was in communications. That's so broad. I, I yeah. studied communications. It's as funny well. that when I ran the rock club, when I ran brownies, um, my my degree is like a specialization in audio production. But the mm-hmm. only thing I couldn't do in the bar was the soundboard. Like I actually was in. I you know my my education revolves around that, but yeah. I don't know how to do sound. I could like do any other job in the place, booking the bands, bartending, managing, run the door, running whatever, stage managing, but I couldn't do the one thing that my degree is. Maybe in. you just weren't interested in it. Yeah, I think I wanted to, be, I don't know why I got into communication. I think I wanted to be in, I thought I wanted to be in radio. I thought mm. I wanted, because that was a way to get involved in music without being a musician. Right. And, and then I've in pursuing that, I realized that, Oh, there are like record companies. Did you DJ at your college radio station? Yeah. You did, yeah. Me too. That's a good way to get uh, a grasp, an overview of Yeah, the and then my first job was calling college, promoting records to college radio stations. Mm-hmm. I would get on the phone and 
play this artist. Yeah. yeah. Using the phone, huh? That's old school. The phone, right? yeah. yeah. That's how people used to try to get things done. It was the only way. Yeah. Fax was new. Mm-hmm. So you went from college DJ, and then that's when you realized, oh, I think I want to be in the music industry. Well, I realized that I wouldn't have to move to some scrawny little town in the middle of nowhere and work mm-hmm. for three, two, you know, one to eight in the morning for six years. Trying to avoid the day job? Well, I wouldn't have to do that. I wouldn't have to be a DJ in nowhere to get a, you know, like it was just like, that's not a career that pays much. doesn't really have a future. Yeah. It didn't. I, and I wasn't that into it when I realized what radio did. It was like, Oh, they're not really into music there. It's just, you know, I got to see what radio was. It's a, they're being told what to play. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really a a place for creativity. Yeah. There's not everyone can be Howard Stern. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I did that for a while. Then what? So in college, what did you do after college? How did this? How did you get from college DJ to whatever happened next? And what did happen next? <laughs> there you go. Um, in college, I got an internship. I actually went to. I like. I remember doing this in my f- summer after my first or second year of college. I. Um, went to the local library and got a New York City phone book and mm-hmm. looked up the, the every record company that I could think of, you know, like the major labels and the whatever, mostly major labels. I didn't really know about independent rock at that point. Mm-hmm. And called them and asked to look to the college department and said, like, hi, I go to college. I want to be in the music business. And I, I want to be an intern. Did you even know what part of the music N- business you No, I asked for college because mm-hmm. I figured college radio was where a kid in college would get an internship there. Right, right. And uh, ended up with an internship. And that's how it, I started. The first thing I did, I worked for some little company called Celluloid Records and counted records in a warehouse. They were like, oh, you want to work for free? Yeah, you're hired. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of a no-brainer. Right? Yeah, exactly. It was like, oh, yeah. But it was, I mean, I met people in that internship that I still know. It was mm-hmm. like 1987. Did they end up uh, hiring you? No. They didn't have a job for me. But I, they helped get me a job. Mm-hmm. But I got a job in a mailroom. I had to like... Was really my my dad loved that. Put, sent like spent a ton of money putting me through college. Yeah, and then I got a job in a mailroom. That's the story of every college. And he kid was just now. like, well, now it is. But at the time, he was like, uh, couldn't you get the mailroom job without the degree? I'm like, right. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Where, where did you go to college? Ithaca. Okay. You probably never used your degree ever. Never. Never once used no. it. I use it. I use what I learned in college, mostly in the sort of media criticism side of, I took a lot of courses in like um, media ethics or understanding me or how, you know, just the influence of media on public opinion, like that right. kind of thing. You learned which stuff, is, but you never used the paper. No, not at all. But the stuff that I learned, it's like gives, gave me, I think a really prepped me for like cable news and, the internet and how information flows and mm-hmm. what to believe, what not to believe, how opinions are formed, how it, you know, it gave me, I think I, you know, I can consume news better than sounds like you the studied. average Joe. Yeah. It sounds like you studied communications. It's exactly what it is. It was communication. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever used my degree either. I have a bachelor's degree. I don't think I've once used the piece of paper, but I do notice friends of mine that haven't gone to college. I feel like it taught me a discipline that, most of my friends that didn't lack like just being in college, having to show up, having to do papers, having to take the exams. Yeah. Yeah, It's sort of, I mean, 
everything. School in general, I think, is just a, I mean, there's certainly things to learn, and you do learn things, but most of what you learn is how to operate. You mm-hmm. learn how to operate. Like, so yeah. if you... How to you function know, with... A how diverse to function, group of people. Yeah, exactly. How to function in the world. And it's, a, it's a microcosm. The college is a microcosm of the world. but It's, it's a very more, safe microcosm, isn't it? For the most part. Yeah. As long, you know, well, you know, until somebody shows up with a gun in class and starts killing everyone. That didn't happen when I was in college. No, nah, it didn't know. happen when I was in college either. It's a new trend. Um, the, uh, but, oh, I lost my train of thought again. Uh, You're talking about the mailroom. Yeah, how you got into the, how you got in, what was your first real job in the music industry, first paying job? Um, I worked for Thirsty Ear, which was at the time not a a label, it was a marketing company, but they were the U.S. office for Beggar's Banquet Records. Okay. And I'd called college radio stations for them. Right, so you're doing college radio promo. And that kind of set me into the world, I just met, because I was at a really high profile label, everyone, at the time Beggar's Banquet was like, you know. Bauhaus, Love and Rockets, Peter Murphy, Buffalo Tom, The Cult, um, The Charlatans, and a lot of other bands that nobody now remembers mm-hmm. that it was smaller bands, but we were like a hip label. We right, were like, you were breaking them. We were the matador of 1988 or nine or whatever, which yeah. is a horrible way to put it, but we were like a hip label, English hip label that everyone wanted. All, you know, So I was like a popular guy with all the college radio stations. Sure, and you're also around when um, indie labels started to actually make a footprint. Yeah, well, that era of indie labels, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, there was, I mean, in, in America, there was definitely a whole thing of independent labels going on from the early 80s with, you know, when SST started and I'm going to be really, I'm going to kind of go off on my my history, my history of indie rock is well, not like going to be Pix- so good. Were the Pixies on an independent label? Uh, well, the Pixies were on 4AD in the UK. Well, that was the other thing. There were a lot of English and European independent labels that would license their stuff in, in America to majors. Right. So, okay, right. and the independent, an independent label in the UK was a very different thing. It's a the entire country is the size of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, the the what it needed to much easier to conquer. Yeah, and there were w- national weekly music papers mm-hmm. that were people. Bought, you know, people went out and bought singles. It was just a different, yeah. mic, it was a different thing. So, but to, but you couldn't really at that time. Uh, distribution was an enormous part of the music business at that time. Mm-hmm. Being able to get records into places where people could buy them, and yes. in, a lot of indies based them based. You know, uh, had mail order was a big thing in independent. You know, with it's almost and stuff. totally opposite how it is now. Now anyone can make a recording at home and then upload it to yes. iTunes and have world distribution. Yes, I mean you're talking about a time when there are actual gatekeepers, and for people to have their music heard by other people, they physically had to have it manufactured and physically sent to someone's home or yep. car. Yes, I mean that's just like such an enormous difference than it is now. Yes, exactly. It's a world-changing, it's yeah, like distribution, horse to car. Well, manufacturing and distribution were the two big expenses and problems. Yeah. It was like make actually making the thing that you're going to sell and then getting it to the person that wants to buy it. Physically getting it Physically to them. Physically getting it yeah. to them. But now you don't have to manufacture because you just have an MP3 and you duplicate it or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, WAV files or whatever it is. And distribution is the internet. Yeah. So That's actually what like really but, killed me from being a musician was when I finished my last record and I was done, and I was like, ugh, all I did was make a folder. 
like I wasn't going to tour it. I was kind of burnt out on touring. So I was like, I'm not going to tour it. So I'm not going to make CDs. And what did I do? I have a folder on a computer that nobody wants a folder. Who wants another folder? No, you do have so to depressing. make. depressing. Well, you can do Bandcamp based on that. You can put your shit up on Bandcamp. Yeah, you just, you it's that. just, I don't know. It's just files. Who wants more files? Well, it's a, is it a, it's an audio file that you can play, right? Yeah. I mean, yes. But even now, like, it used to be like, oh, I don't want a CD. I'm going to throw away my CDs. And I was like, I don't even want another file taking up room on my computer. Yeah. Which is I, why streaming is so popular now. Yeah. That's true. But you again, if it's up on Bandcamp, so if it's up somewhere in line, you can stream it as well as you can stream it too or just have it available. Yeah. It is, I mean, that it seemed like, it, you know, this whole democratization of the ability for music to get out there, it just meant that. Any, there were no, you, we needed the gatekeepers. We, they weren't very good, the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. They were basically monetarily based. It was like right, right. who had money to distribute, who made, but it just meant that not everything was released and out there and available. It just see, it's impossible to keep track now. At the time, I felt like in, in the 80s and 90s, I felt like there were very few bands that made a record of any kind that I didn't know about or hear about or have access to, or it seemed, it's not to say there were more people making music now, mm-hmm. but there's way more people. There's just way more stuff available. Mm-hmm. There's just an enormous amount of stuff because of how easy it is to put it up online and, and it make changes it available. The, it changes the culture too. Like before the uh, globalization of everything, there were scenes like the grunge scene in Seattle. Yeah. There was a sound that would happen in a particular location. I don't know. I think that might still happen in some cases, but it is. You're right. It's I haven't less... heard of that since since maybe when you were around, like the yeah yeah yeahs and the Strokes and that New York scene, which you had a a big hand in. Um. Yeah. Well. I, yeah. I had a hand in. Um, I mean, my club. Yeah. When I ran the Club Brownies, which was mm-hmm. an East Village rock club that I owned from 97 till it ended but worked out just in booking before then um and yeah let's let's get to that cause, sure because brownies is like a, a benchmark in uh indie rock it history. is it's less it's actually less celebrated because i because i never we never like we never even made a t-shirt like there are no brownies t-shirts there's no wikipedia page there's no you know there's like a little there's one facebook group that's just like Brownies was a club in the East Village, and right. people put pictures of it. And people have a lot of different memories of it because it had a lot of different phases of its existence. A lot too. of big bands started. Yeah, even there. before I, I mean, it opened in 80, 1989, mm-hmm. probably started doing music on a regular basis in 91 or 92. Um, but it was a local play. It was just like a local place where, you know, this guy's friends played that. And it, people kind of found, like, Different scenes found it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was probably a big, uh, a lot of musicians hanging out with other musicians, seeing yes. what's happening. Yes. When I got there, basically, uh, Out of Town Bent had been playing there already. There was definitely a scene that was national that was beginning to find it, that began to find brownies, uh, mostly through um, a couple of different promoters, me not being one of them. And I sort of stepped in because the people who, re- you know, the owners, the people who were running at the time, mm-hmm. I don't know, they wanted a they wanted sort of a head of booking who could like t- um oversee like the whole just, thing. Yeah, oversee the whole thing basically. Yeah. And uh so And you guys were successful I, because I think you did something that a lot of clubs don't do where like you kind of catered it to your tastes and what you thought was good and it had a vibe like you can somewhat. Kind of, 
Well, you can kind of go to brownies and you'll hear a certain kind. Yeah, I th- yeah, I don't know how true that. I think that's the perception, but I think there mm-hmm. are different people who have different perceptions of what scene it was. There were several different scenes that felt at home there. Uh-huh. Um, and there was just a t- it was just a time then where there was this influx of little rock bands and in New York if you called CBGBs, they wouldn't either they would hang up on you and not call you back and they just, you know, they had a different very punk rock way of doing things. They didn't really care that you needed this, you know, whatever. And we would call them back. like, And the right. Mercury Lounge was kind of happen- just beginning at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Brownies definitely preceded the Mercury Lounge, but not as a national. Didn't really start to get attention nationally where there were agents. And so I had I had a lot of re- – I didn't know what I was doing when I started booking there. But there I was didn't a, there take was a that real job. Scene. There was a real scene there where, like, label A&R yes, people would come. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I didn't take that job because I wanted to book a club. I was out of work. I had no money. I didn't want the job. I was like, I don't want to work at a bar. I was, I wanted an office job. I had had office jobs, music business office jobs, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I didn't have a choice. My unemployment was running out. And so I started booking shows a couple of times a month. And, yeah. uh, but the idea was if this guy can handle it, we'll give him the whole job. If he knows what he's doing, if he can make it work. And, and that's a there job, was definitely job. a, it became a job job for sure. Yeah. But there was sort of this intersection of um, I knew a lot of people in the record business just because beggars was, I met A&R people at major labels. I met like, I just knew I had a, you know, I networked a bunch and I yeah. knew a lot of people. I, I guess I had a pretty decent reputation as an honest guy or somebody that tried hard or worked or people that just liked me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in the early nineties, I became, I got really into the indie rock, like the simple machine scene or like, uh, merge, like all these little indie labels all over the country, sub pop, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I was really into American indie rock. Um, and knew a lot of those bands Yeah, and got, was just because in that, at that time, the people who were fans of the bands were peers of the bands. It was like, you know, there was just a scene. Incestuous scene. Yeah. In a good yeah. way. So, it just like it was just the right place, at the right time. The music I was really into had a was being sought after by major labels mm-hmm. and by larger indie labels, and I was sort of connected to both worlds loosely, or I could at least pretend I was enough. Where Brownies became the play, one of the places, and we were just very receptive. Like Who are if somebody of- called from nowhere and was like, you know, if I liked the music, I would give it a shot or, or try to give it a shot. And it just kind of got out that, yeah, if you call these, these people, they're basically going to be this nice is, to you. This is pre-internet time. So bands Absolutely. would be sending you a package. Yes. So and how, phone calls, phone calls. And phone calls. How, no, and not, there's no like cell phones. It was just, it was all, everything was landlines. So how would you hear their music? They'd have to mail it to me mm-hmm. and I would play it on a cassette yeah. Or a CD. How many packages would you get a day? Uh, at the height of when it was really happening, like 95 to 98, 99, and that, you know, whatever, you would get, I mean, 100 things a week. Okay, 100 packages a week. And if, and if it wasn't a package, it was an agent calling you about something, or it was like just things that wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And find a time to listen to? No, those? you couldn't. You couldn't. I had an intern who did some of it. And a lot of what you were listening for, you could sometimes just open the back and look at it. And <laughs> you're like, no, we're not going to book that. Sometimes you could just tell by looking at it. What, what are you I, looking for? A professionalism I, or a creativity? Necess- not necessarily. You'd have to see it to know. You could see something and go, oh, this is like 
a really dumb New Jersey hard rock band that nobody at this bar is going to give a shit about, or right, they're right, not, right. you know, I was doing to a different kind of scene or some, you know, just, uh, things that were just not meant for that bar. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But for the most part, I like to treat brownies as a, it was a vessel for whoever could bring 160 people out or 50 people or, four, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what bands, uh, have you, did you book that you saw go on to international success? Oh, many, 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 many. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I wasn't always the one that was the, I was the, I was the sort of figurehead and the main booking guy or the one who set policy, but Chris White and Eric Speck and Lisa Garrett and Will Langoff and a bunch of other people, um, throughout time did a lot of the booking, Rachel mm-hmm. Tanzer. Um, who are some of the bands that came through that you saw? Uh, so I'm trying to think, I always give out the same list and then later I'm like, Oh, I forgot. I always forget that that happened or that happened because there's so many or things that I find out later uh-huh. that something like, Oh, they played there. Like sure. I didn't know that that showcase happened. Like, cause it was just an invisible, another band doing an eight o'clock showcase for mm-hmm. some label. And then 10 years later, they're like, we played at your cl- Idlewild played at Brownies during CMJ once. And I uh-huh. had no idea they played there. Um, I mean, I know I the, yeah, yeah, yes, the yeah, 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 the strokes, the strokes, not really. Cause their manager worked at the Mercury lounge and okay. they did most of their small underplay. And they did play there a couple of times before anyone cared. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they kind of blew up and never, they kind of got too big for us so quickly. And their manager booked the Mercury lounge and was involved with Barry ballroom. So it was just a really logical, right. Organic thing for them to just kind of blow up from there. This just never never happened do you remember getting a package from a band that went on to be very big i don't know that's a good question i don't not like something that i got was like no one knows what this is and now it's a household name yeah not really most of that stuff either well yeah yeah yeah, or would come to me through recommendations of other bands right right, that's what a lot of it was too or just these guys played two shows in brooklyn under this thing or they played opening for this and they sent you a tape and you put them on you just had to be kind of I don't know. I can't, it's so long ago. I don't remember exactly how mm-hmm. we did it, but it is like, uh, I mean, we, the stuff that's most recognized as being brownies brought out, um, locally Interpol, the AAS, um, radio Four, rapture. Um, and when you saw these bands perform, brownies, is not a big place. Correct. Now, when you saw them, were you, could you tell that they were going to be very popular? Sometimes you did. Sometimes you were. I, there were a lot of things I thought were going to be huge that weren't. Uh huh. So, you know, you can go either way. Yeah. Um, but did that Cap- make you angry? <laughs> you still? Yeah, just like the anger of people not having good taste. It's like, oh God, that's a waste of time being angry about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Spoon, Death Cap for Cutie, mm-hmm. Bright Eyes, My Morning Jacket, Not a Surf. Um, well, they all play. They're probably like on one of their first few tours. Yeah, huh? yeah. Um, any that I can't, and I always there's the whole like emo thing, like brand new, Taking Back Sunday, and uh-huh. like a lot of that stuff was doing the Sunday the Sunday <clears throat> all ages shows. Right, and I was not super into that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but tons of those bands that were huge played at Brownies. I know one of my favorites, uh, Elliot Smith played there. Elliot right? Smith, exa- I often forget to mention Elliot, and mm-hmm. he was, yeah, he played there, there a bunch. Chris White 
who was my booking partner at the time when that was happening, really brought him, you know, befriended him or either through his agent or his manager. I'm not remembering how it What era happened. of his career was that? It was before, and it was like before the first record or just when the first record, after Heat Miser and just when the first record was about to come out. Okay, so before the Oscar nomination. Oh, way before that. Yeah, no, it was all, we still kill rock stars. Era. Okay. It was still, um, he played, he actually opened for Mark Eitzel once. That's how he first played. Wow. I have to cough. <coughs> That's what the water's for. Yeah, I know, but. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he played there a bunch, huh? Yeah, he did. And then he did a two-night stand, headlined. And mm-hmm. there was one, one or more of those shows. I think it was the Eitzel one. As people remember this back to me or read this back to me a lot, where I got up and like there was this thing, it's a standing only club. Mm-hmm. And if the band wasn't like loud and rocking out, people in the back by the bar are talking and it mm-hmm. wouldn't. Right. So it was going to be an acoustic show. Yeah. And it was sold out and it was people who all wanted to be there, but didn't, it still didn't mean there weren't going to be. So I actually got on the mic before a show and was like, I need everyone's attention. Like, it's not going to be loud. Everyone needs to shut the fuck up. I don't care if you're in the back of the bar or wherever you are. Like, you can't be talking during this show. Like, we sort of, and right. it got enforced. People were kind of respectful of it. It yeah. was pretty cool. No, but it was sold out for Mark Eitzel, not for Elliot Smith, right? That show was the two of them. But there were a lot of people who kind of heard of him and knew, you know, he was like a name that they were familiar with. Yeah. But yeah, that show was sold out mostly because of Mark, I would guess. Okay. Yeah, I, was, I saw Elliot Smith a bunch when I lived in Los Angeles, and uh, I was very inconsistent. Yeah. Was he like that even back yeah. then? Yeah, he was. He was pretty inconsistent. Mm-hmm. You saw him just forget words or something? Forget yeah, words? Not too much. I think he lived when well, he was, he was, I would imagine he had more West Coast shows and maybe mm-hmm. when he, I don't remember him being incoherent or not play. you know, I mean, the shows were played, they were good. It was, he didn't like mess stuff up okay. my, to my recollection. Yeah, I saw a painful, painful show. They happen. Uh, oh, someone like him definitely seems more more likely. Someone struggling so much that yeah. he would be inconsistent and have some painful shows. He couldn't even remember his own lyrics, and like right. people would shout him out, and then he'd go ah. And, and this play. is later on. Yeah, this was at Sunset Junction, which is like a big outdoor festival. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You know, I was never. I mean, he came to the bar and hung out quite a bit, and I was very friendly with his agent and a couple of people around him, but I didn't know him very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, but I mean, I guess, I mean, whatever. The guy had um, DNs. Yeah, he had D, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I and got to I got happen. to meet him uh, like <coughs> probably two months before he died. We had like a fifteen twenty minute conversation, which is neat. <clears throat> Would you say it's your fault, Gary? Pretty much. Yeah. He probably was like, "Well, that's the height of my life. I guess <laughs> I'm just gonna die." <laughs> so, did you talk to him at all when he was there? Not much. Mm-hmm. Not much at all. We weren't really. Um, any crazy stories where you had to pull someone out of the bathroom and like (laughs) um, I don't remember that happening Um, well you told me a story once that uh, something happened with Ben Gibbard and you had to yeah this is like a legendary story it gets told a lot Uh they were playing um, in the middle of a CMJ bill Mm-hmm. I'd only met them once before. We didn't really know each other. <clears throat> they just knew the club. And um, when they pulled into the bus stop, when they pulled into to unload their gear, they were like, "We think Ben has mono, and we have to cancel." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Don't cancel." 
And I made them promise not to tell anyone they weren't going to play because I wanted people to come. Sure. It was like the biggest band of, of my CMJ. Actually, they probably weren't. They weren't that big, but they were like at the time. But they were the biggest thing on the bill. It was right. like one of those seven, eight band bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the long winters were on the bill and something from my care. And I don't even remember who else was on it. But I got, I had a doctor I had recently gone and gotten a checkup from. And I remember having a conversation with this this GP, just like what I do for a living and whatever. And I'm like, oh, was, and it was right, around, it was like very close to the bar. Yeah. Well, I know this this kind of care. <clears throat> he seemed interested, but yeah. whatever. So I called him. Yeah. And was like, um, I need you to see this guy in this band who's coming through. They he thinks he has mono, but if nothing else, he just needs to know what he has, and maybe he needs a script for penicillin or something. Yeah. Um, would you see him? Is he a junkie? I'm like, no, he's like a 23 year old kid from Washington state, but he's no, you know, <laughs> like that makes him not a junkie. <laughs> no, no. I meant that he's on the road and like, it's not, you know, he's not, um, it's an illegitimate question from, from a doctor. He's, it's he a legitimate. What, he knows question. what he's dealing with before he it's gets a legitimate question. Yeah. He wanted to know who I was. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kurt but, Cobain was a 23-year-old from uh, Washington. That's true. Well, it, it is kind of funny because like, that's one thing about the guys in Death Cab. They're, they're very, um, there was always a joke about them, like putting the punk back in punctual. They're like very <laughs> yeah. well-behaved. Yeah, you know, just, like, just nice, regular guys. Yeah, they were yeah. not like, you're not going to, there are no scandals surrounding them. Uh, Can I just say that I like Death Cab for Cutie, but that is one of my uh, gripes about the music industry the musicians now is that everyone like you really have to have your shit together nowadays to get through the mess to get through the everything's so clouded there's so many musicians that people like daniel johnston or people that are really fucked up they won't be able to cut through these days you know like jim morrison or whatever elliot smith unless your music is so amazing and someone is championing it for you you're not going to cut through the mud. I think most people like that were, let's say, fucked up, as you're saying, yeah. throughout history, didn't make it either. I think Jim Morrison, you know, just had so much charisma, something like that, and so talented and was around so much, you know, yeah, so, but- so much of a scene. I would say historically, probably most drug addicts and mentally disabled people what about Amy? not what, I mean, there's just less of those <clears throat> rock and roll lives. There's less Can you of those name people? me any, any of them Amy in the Wy- last five a- years? Amy Winehouse? She might be the last one. Can name me, name me one in the last five years of music. Pete, uh, the guy from the Libertines. and That's more than five years ago. I'm well, telling you, the internet is changing. Well, the five years is a pretty Whitney short. Houston, Michael pretty Jackson. Sh- it's a pretty short period of time. Five years. It's happening <laughs> now. It's happened. It does happen. There's less of it. Less of it. I just. Well, that's my I think theory, that because. That. Well, I think that there's an extent that because there's. Uh, there's so always much. been there's always been money behind it, but it, the stakes are so much higher that if they perceive that you're not together, right? Maybe you're not going to get the same kind of corporate push because you're not going to be able to follow through. If you're going to be dead, like, you know, you got to make a few records first for them to right, then exploit right. it. Or I don't know. I don't know if it's that cynical. I just think that, um, well, thank you. I, I like know. my cynicism challenged. It's okay. I don't <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think if somebody comes along that has a Jim Morrison like character or whatever, somebody with that much star power, right. they're going to be noticed because mm-hmm. there's somebody who's going to back that. If it's that, good even if they're dysfunctional um you get them a handler you know that's what handlers are for Mm -hmm. you get you get them the right management the right thing the right situation you find a way to channel it Mm -hmm. um 
that's what the goal, that's what people want to do that are in the people that are really in the business will, you know, they feel like they can handle it. You yeah. Know? I mean, and for the most part that, I mean, you know, like Axl Rose still actually gets on stage. <laughs> you know, like, right. As messed up as the guy is, like he still does it. He's still, you know, whatever. Um, I didn't at the end of the off. death cap. Yeah. The end of the death cap story. So the guy took, so the doctor was like, all right, yeah, send him over. So, <laughs> Uh, it turned out that he was trying to support like a vegan guy who was trying to eat vegan on the road while drinking every night and eating in truck stops and not really eating. He's like, the doctor's like, you don't have mono, you have malnutrition, you're dying. Like you need to eat some food. <laughs> right. And uh, so it became kind of a laugh. Like they called him, the, they were calling him on the road, the collapsing vegan. Cause he couldn't, yeah. he couldn't stand up. Like he was so weak. It's like, well, you're drinking and partying till two in the morning and driving, not sleeping enough and mm-hmm. eating like, Crap. Mm-hmm. Nothing like, you know, chips and fucking Mountain Dew or whatever. I don't know what mm-hmm. he was eating. Yeah. He's a very healthy guy. Truck stop food. Truck stop food. Yeah. So uh, he, we took him to my apartment. He slept on my futon and uh, woke up five hours later and was like, I think I can play. Mm-hmm. And the show happened with him sitting on, on a chair, but the band played and he was sitting down for the whole set. But it was this traumatic day, this crazy thing. And then this like bitter, angry New York club guy, like, found them a doctor right so yeah. which was not what you'd expect to happen in new york city in 1995 or yeah. whatever it was it was a little later but but, get on stage kid you gotta play yeah or like you know yeah or just whatever just somebody yeah. who was heartless and didn't give a shit right and uh so that sort of sparked a pretty good friendship between me and the band and we're mm-hmm. still i mean we're still friendly i don't see them that often they're not here very much but we communicate and they're you super, might have saved super his life. guys well that's the thing like i've met his parents and they're like uh and it's like that's the guy that saved my son's <laughs> life. It's like a really cool. They're they're really they're they're really cool people. Did I miss they're, it? What did the doc? What did the doctor do? Did he give him a shot of something, or just give him a bowl of? Pasta? I think he might have gave him. A, he might have given him like a like a B twelve. I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. what he did, but he just basically he asked him questions. He looked at him. He checked his vitals or whatever he checked, and he's mm-hmm. like, "You don't have anything. You're just like you're you're you haven't eaten." Like he probably said, "What have you been eating?" And the guy was like, "Um." Frito. I don't know. You know, I don't know what the conversation was. Right. But the result was, you're going to be fine. You just have to put you have to put nutrition into your system. Yeah. Well, that's actually which a is good a very <laughs> yeah exactly. And it's also just funny. It is very much something that somebody in the early 20s is going to do. Like right, you just right. think of yourself as invincible, and you don't mm-hmm. think like the idea of like you know yeah I'm drinking and I'm not eating anything. Yeah. And, and that wonder why I'm sick. You know? I've I've never had a doctor ask me about my diet, which I always think is a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they'll, well, they'll you look you like you have a decent metabolism. You're a thin guy. You look pretty in shape. Yeah, but so if you're sick you're and you're going to, I, I do actually eat healthy. That's my health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. But the doctors never, I've never, still, like, if I'm sick, oh, what did you eat? What are you eating? What is your diet? Like, that seems like it would be the first question, but for some reason. It should be, yeah. 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 A lot of doctors don't, but they'll prescribe something. Well, after they check your blood and do all the whatever. Ah, uh, they're infuriating. Yeah, they are. But everything's infuriating. <laughs> is, 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 that, is that doctor you mentioned still practicing? Maybe I don't we should know. send Gary there. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think he's where he was. I don't think he's still. I mean, this is like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of care that you gave to the band, I think that's probably what drew all, a lot of the good bands and the whole scene to Brownies. Is that you cared for the bands and there was like actual care and love put into it, you know? There was. There was. It, we definitely had a mission. Um, and 
I felt it was a mission. It was a mission. It was like to provide a, an atmosphere for stuff that doesn't, uh, that doesn't have a lot of places to play and mm -hmm. doing bills that are true to what that stuff is, or, you know, putting bands together on bills that seem the right fit together. So try to keep people around for more than one show. Um, <clears throat> and it, over time you like anything else, just life experiences beats you down. And, uh, it wasn't a mission anymore. Like it became a task. It became mm. like, and it's just, you know, it's a very, how long did it take for it to thankless, become? <clears throat> it's a really thankless job. Yeah. And there were specific things about brownies that made it very difficult for it to make money or to hold on to stuff or keep it. You know, I wasn't connected with a bigger venue to kind of like continue promoting onto other things. I right. we tried to have arrangements, just didn't really work. Um, the, the, the stage and the bar were in the same room. It's one, one room. And why is so, that a disadvantage? Because if you went to see the second band and somebody else was playing when you got there, you'd like go across the street and get a drink. Because it's too loud? Just because you didn't want to be in the room. You want to talk to your friends before the show or whatever. Right, People right. would, yeah, they wouldn't necessarily want to be there for, this is why we tried to put bills together, but it didn't always work I, that I feel way. like that, that was a change in the scene. Like, you know, like when uh, places like Pianos, Arlene's, and, mm -hmm. you know, started coming up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, Arlene's wasn't would, like that in the beginning. They oh, built, okay. the, they ended oh, okay. up building the, buying, getting the place next door and turning ah, it into two rooms. It used to be the okay. same room. It yeah. used to be just one room. Okay. But it is, you're totally right. It's, it's um, because there are so many places to go. Mm -hmm. It's not, people don't, if there's an indie rock show in Columbia, Missouri at the Blue Note um, or any of these like college town clubs or whatever, or smaller cities, you go to the place and you spend your night at that place. That's where you're going. You go to dinner maybe and then you go there and you drink and you watch the show. It doesn't really work that way in New York City. It's like, um, my friend's band's playing at 10. We're going to eat. We're going to mm -hmm. go to dinner at 8 and then we're going to go get a drink at this bar and then we'll walk over and see the band and then we'll leave. Right. And you'd have people who would... I brought them to the neighborhood to see a show, but they spent their money in multiple places mm -hmm, right. because I didn't have that other room. If right. you go to the Mercury Lounge, if you want to yeah. talk to your friends during a Mercury Lounge gig, mm -hmm. you just go out to the main bar and you're still giving them their money. In Brownie's case, you went across the street or around the corner to one of the other neighboring bars. Like, right. let's come back. And, yeah, we'll just go get a drink around the corner and come back in a half right. hour. If we were busy, it was very hard to get a drink. Mm -hmm. And if we weren't busy, you didn't want to be in an empty, a relatively empty room with a loud band playing while you're trying to talk to your friend if you just yeah. go around the corner. So it was just that was one of the reasons why it couldn't make enough money. Was also the scene moving south to like Lower East Side? That's later. Hippier. Okay. That's later. I think that started in the late 2000s okay. to become <clears throat> not, it's, I mean, Below Houston was pretty big in 2002, 3, 4, you know, in the early 2000s. And Brownies closed in 2002. Why did you why did you close it? For just that reason. It didn't make enough money and it mm -hmm. became I didn't like doing it anymore. It was just like why am I doing this? How long had you been doing it? I did it from 94 to 96, then I got a job at Sony and got laid off and came back in the middle of <clears throat> excuse me, middle excuse me, middle end of 97 mm -hmm. and started up again and we closed it in 2002. Isn't that a thing of life and getting older is like you do something for a set amount of time then it loses its excitement? Well, I think if you're looking for that kind of fulfillment from your work, as opposed to from your life, mm -hmm. um, it presents challenges for you to keep your work interesting. 
Um, and it didn't really, we couldn't move on to bigger things. It was difficult to move on. to. But it, it sounds like it wasn't only just a business decision. It was also like a life decision of like, all right, I'm kind of over booking these bands. And like, you've been there, done that kind of thing. You needed to do something new. Yeah, that was the idea. The idea was that Hi-Fi would make the same money as Brownies. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, would have though- more, I would have more time to do something else. But then uh, Hi-Fi made a lot more money than Brownies. Made a lot more money. And I didn't have to do anything else because right. I had enough income running just that one bar. People were there to drink, not to see bands. The bar was open for 12 hours, not four. So right. it, just made, it just was a better thing. So Brownies came to an end. You decided to bring it to an end in 2002. And then you decided to change the name and re- do some remodeling. Yes. We, well, we completely, yeah, blew out the stage. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, Brownies was, Hi-Fi was just one room as well. It wasn't mm-hmm. the way it is today where there's two bases. It was just one room. It had a pool table. It had these like red booths. And it was kind of gaudy looking and weird. It the was original like, Hi-Fi? Yeah. Uh-huh. From 2002 to 2000. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Uh, when did we renovate? 13. So like okay. 11 years. Also oh, pretty recently you renovated it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and your we wouldn't have, you found, you know, you found Hi-Fi to do your comedy show yeah. in shortly after that room. That room was oh, brand really? new when that happened. Oh, I didn't even know that. It was brand so new. So it was good timing. Yeah. It was Sweet. us figuring out what we were going to do back there. It is so perfect. <laughs> like us doing the show at your place. It's just small and perfect if you it's, have... And it's a bar that I would hang out in. And usually the acts we book, it's like, you notice a lot of the comedians stay and hang out. Some of them do try to, yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. Because yep. it makes for a good scene too, you know? It does. Get that intermingling of. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So but I'm I, curious about this because it is something that, I'm, that I've gone through and like a lot of my friends are going through where you do something for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And you're like, all right. Like, like I was a musician for a while and I did a lot of touring, you know, I got to tour Europe several times, toured the U.S. several times. The thought of doing, like like the last tour I went on as a musician, I was just like, oh, I hate this, I hate this. And I kept thinking, why am I hating this? This is so lame. I'm in a car, I'm like, you know, traveling, I'm playing, I'm in a band, I'm pl- playing music and this is, should be exciting, but it just sucked. What did your therapist think of that? <laughs> to go have, back to you of course it was before Obamacare. I didn't have a health uh, insurance or yeah, yeah. But um, I yeah, that would have been interesting to because talk to. yeah, because whatever void you were trying to fill by touring and being bands, eventually like 
that void returns. Whatever it is that's frustrating you in your life returns. That's what I'm scared of. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think you do have to constantly yeah. reinvent yourself. Yeah. And some people don't. I, you know, I've I always I've felt that way about myself for a long time. You're like, oh yeah, I'll get. I'm going to keep doing this forever and doing this forever. But it never really turns out that way. You need life changes. You need life changes. You yeah. do, but not everyone does. A lot of people just sort of. You know, they, they find their fit and they just move on, you know, whatever. Either they don't get, either they're not looking for that kind of fulfillment from what they do 20, 50 hours a week, or they get their life fulfillment from family and from having kids and from things outside of their job. Right. You know, I've, well, as a guy who's always had a job that was his, that defined who I was, mm. I kind of am attracted to the idea of not having job that defines who I like just having some like working for somebody else I haven't worked for anybody I haven't worked for another person since 1997 you think the grass is greener on that side <laughs> I do understand it's a grass is greener thing where it's not but it's um but it's attractive the idea of like being able to leave work and not have it follow me out the door right, right. is attractive because I haven't had that in over 20 years. I, well, I think also thing, things have changed since then, so you can't leave work anymore. People will be emailing you, texting you. Well, that's the thing right. about... So it's like, uh, do what you're doing. That's <laughs> the thing where I don't, I don't know how much of this part of it works for this podcast because I don't want to tell people I'm thinking about getting out of New York City because I'm not, but I am. But I don't know if I want to... Um, well, you've been in New York City for a while. I've right? lived in the Lower East Side and East Village since 1989. Okay. And, and before that, I was in Bergen County, New Jersey, which is where I went to grade school and high school and lived with my parents through college. So you've seen a lot of changes in the East Village. Yeah, tons of it. But it's all, you know, I'm almost, I'm 49 next week. So mm -hmm. Happy I'm, birthday. Thank you. Uh, you seem a lot younger than that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, there's a lot of things that change just because you're not the same person you were when you were 35 or when you were 25 or when you were whatever, where you just, okay, I want different things now. You know what? I've recently realized, thank goodness for that, <laughs> right? Like if our mind didn't change, every, it would be like Groundhog's Day. Everything would be the same thing yeah. over and over. But what you're saying about how hard it is for people, it's what you have to do. Well, I, all right. I should say it's just, I was, I've been really blessed for the past 20 years in that I have lived exclusively off of half of one bar's income. Like I owned, I own half of this business mm -hmm. and it has been my income for a long time. And I've managed to, and have a pretty leisurely day to day lifestyle in New York city where people generally have to work two jobs and you know, whatever I walk to work 10 blocks away from my apartment. I've, you know, but you can't really do it anymore. You can't, it's not, you need to make so much more money now to live here mm -hmm. comfortably. And also the older you get, the more comfort you want. Right. Um, and it's not worth it. It's almost not worth it. I could see why people, there's a lot of people who are just not enchanted with what it means to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not. You're speaking for other people, but I feel like you're speaking for yourself. I am definitely speaking for myself. Yeah. There's a point where it's like, okay, why do I, why am I here? Right. Why am I in this city? And I love, and I don't know anything else, and I love it here. And mm -hmm. I think I would admit the, the thing that I would, if my, and I wouldn't move to, I'm not going to go to another city. Right. You know? You ever go upstate to the Hudson yeah, Valley? Yeah, I love the Hudson Valley. Mm -hmm. My folks had a house in Saugerties for a while, so I kind of know that area pretty yeah. well. And I could see that. It'd be cool. Maybe you could do like uh, part time here, part time there? Maybe. I don't know what I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, I've got. But you're feeling a life change coming? 
Yeah, I think so. It's exciting. It's scary, too, when you're almost 50. But I also have a very different... Most of my friends, most of my peers, um, have either a mortgage or family or both. Kids, wife support, kids support, kids put through school, whatever. I have none of that. Freedom. And my needs financially are not really that much. I know. I don't have the kind of ambition I had when I was 25 to, you know, I'm not looking to own a billion. I'm just like, I'm probably going to work till I'm 70, Mm -hmm. 20 more years. Like, how do I get through the next 20 years in a similar, in a a similar amount of work as I did the last 20 years by Mm -hmm. just, you know, like having a relatively leisurely existence. Can't do it in New York city anymore. What are you, what are your goals right now? I mean, do you have any goals besides something? I'd like to be in a relationship. I'd like to get married. Mm. Mm-hmm. But um, goals, not, re- um, I don't know that I have any goals to be in inner peace. Yeah, that's a good goal. <laughs> um, you have rent control where you live, I imagine. Stabilized. Huh? Stabilized. Yeah. What does that mean? It means it goes up, just doesn't go up very much. It goes okay. like limited, 1% a year, 2% a year, like different. I feel like that could be a, a blessing and a curse because people that have that, they feel like, oh, I can't move. I have this great deal. Yes. it's Oh, I definitely couldn't afford anywhere else in New York City that mm-hmm. would be worth. I mean, if I moved further out into the bur- into the boroughs and had a cheaper apartment, going back and forth into Manhattan, I would spend all that money. Time and money. Yeah, so it wouldn't matter. Yeah. If, if you could make it work where you could have a place outside of the city and live in both places... Is that is that something you would do if if it was financially possible? Yeah, I guess so. It's my dream. I'd love to do. I that. just really, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't want to work anymore, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to. Who does? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to get through with as little of that as I have to. Um, and the funny part, I don't mind work. Like I enjoy managing a bar, and I enjoy what I do. Um. The thing is, is that there's 24 hours in a day, and we can only sleep a certain amount. So we have to deal with these hours that we're awake. <laughs> I could sleep an enormous amount. No more than 10, 11 hours, right? If I had to, I think I could. Well, let's you say. Can you pull a 12-hour? Yeah, I could definitely. That's still 12 wow. hours of awake time you have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, but in that 12 hours doesn't include, like, the getting up, the shower, the crap, the breakfast, the, like, Three checking meals, your that's, email. That's nice, the, yeah. yeah, you don't need much. They can, the day can go um, by quickly. It can. Uh, <laughs> I don't, goals. Not really, honestly, I don't have goals that mm-hmm. are concrete. I want to achieve this or achieve that. My goals at this point are very, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but inner peace is my goal. My goal is to be happy, to be blessed, feel content, to right. be in, in touch with what I'm doing. Or, uh, it's, you know, life is not about where you end up. It's about the journey throughout it. And mm-hmm. I'm past the halfway mark at 49. Chances are I'm not going to live to 98. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a heavy thought. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it is what it is. I can't do anything about it. Yeah. It is, you know, and 
I'm pretty happy with what I've done. You know, like, I don't know. It's, I don't, um, it sounds so like I'm not really an, you know, I'm not, I'm not Zen, but I, I, I do have some of that. I don't do, you know, I don't do yoga. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not mm-hmm. any of those things. I don't I belong to any club. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't seem stressed out about it, and that's that's great. I think the other thing is like I'm terrified of dying, but oh, oh, I, I, maybe that sure. But I'm saying <laughs> of, of what you're going to do with the second half of your life. You you seem like I I will figure this out. Well, I do have some financial flexibility. Mm-hmm. I did save a little bit of money, so I'm mm-hmm. I can. But it's more a matter of like I don't. What you're right, and I am trying to figure out what I want to do with the next half of my life, and and it's more a matter of and. You generally, I think you sort of apply until life things hit you that change you, like, oh my God, I've got a kid, I've got to do this, or oh my God, I got a mortgage, I have to do this. None of those things have really entered my life. So to some extent, I have the same approach I've always had to getting a job and doing this and doing that. And it's like, wait a minute. The plan when I was 25, I can't have the same plan now, can I? At 49, I'm going to be the same as I was. No. Well, then what do you want to do? I don't know. And so I, what I want to do, I want to get a big RV and just drive around the country and just see everything. I'd love tra- road tripping around the country. So I want what I want is a leisurely lifestyle to do whatever. I don't want to accumulate a bunch of things and money. I want to accumulate experiences and time and have the peace to be able to do it. So how do you do that and make money? You know, well, how do you earn? Like, I, I don't know. I think in, in the way we're saying, like, let's say over the last 20 years, things have changed a lot. Over the next 20, it'll be 10 times that amount. So who knows what's going to come your way, all of our ways, what possibilities you might be able to make a nice living by driving around in an RV somehow. That'd be awesome. Um, but I like this idea of finding something new because it's something that I've gone through when, you know, switching from music to comedy and, you know, trying to make different part of my life different, keep life fresh. You know, it's hard to keep doing the same thing over and over. Well, if you like what you do, <clears throat> it's... It's it's fine. Um, it depends on what you're, where you're getting your fulfillment in life from. If you're getting it from, I don't have anything other than my work. Mm-hmm. So my identity has always been my job. Mm-hmm. I've almost always been defined by it. So, where are you in the relationship canon of things? I'm not in one. Mm-hmm. I haven't been in any really long term good ones. No, I feel like that's a New York City thing. It's just hard. There's just so much, so many distractions and so many people. And yeah, I'm really bad at knowing how to approach women, how to, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not very good at pursuit of women anybody i'm interested in i pursue doesn't work out for whatever well nowadays you don't have to pursue them you just type a couple letters in a i'm not on i don't i don't have a tin i don't have a tinder i'm not on tinder i'm not Uh, on any of those things you're not do you ever meet people at the bar or yeah but now they're mostly half my age and i'm not really i mean you know of of course there's something very attractive about having a young lover Mm -hmm. but um I, you know, I don't know why they'd be interested in me. So I'm not really trying to meet like a 30 year old. Mm-hmm. It would be like, I would advise them against dating. <laughs> <laughs> You're too nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm just, but it's, it's also, it sounds like it's also just not what you're truly interested in. I think if you were, you would put that aside and be like, I'll date this 30 year old. Um, 
Yeah, but it. <laughs> or I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe. <laughs> no, I think that's. I think that's. It, it, but at the end of the day, like I don't. This is. It can be embarrassing to say, but I don't. I just don't have any game. Like I'm not. I'm not a. That's probably good though that you don't have a game. You're not playing games. You're just. But everyone you. presumes I am probably, and it's like he owns a bar. He probably is makes moves on every girl that comes in here, and people make assumptions about guys that own bars. But aren't you making assumptions about them? Making yes, absolutely. I absolutely am. Um, I'm. I am. Yeah. And so, I'm not good at being the 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 forward. Or I, it's not that I've never done it. I do, but I'm really bad at being forward. You're shy. I think I'm afraid. I think mm. I'm like afraid of rejection. To the well, point then this where is I the era for know. you because mm. with these apps, you don't have to put yourself out there. It's true. You know, I remember you'd have to call, and you know, your voice would be shaky on the phone. Nowadays, it's just you're just a couple typed letters. It doesn't even matter anymore. People don't. You, guys don't have to put modern themselves rom- out. Modern romance. It's true. You don't have there, to put yourself. There's out even like that. there's an app now, Bumble. I know you're not using any of these, but if you were interested and you, you go on and uh, the girl has to make the first move, you know, you, you show that yes, you like yes, each other, yes. but ultimately the girl needs to approach you. Have yeah. you tried that, Matt? I just recently. <laughs> really? Yeah. How is it going? How, it, how many days has it been? No, how many days? Three days or something like okay. that. I, I, I just started, but it's, it's interesting. <clears throat> I've yeah. mostly only dated women that have pursued me <clears throat> because I'm not, which means it doesn't, I don't date that many women, <clears throat> but I, for whatever reason, any women that pursue me are just not what I want. They're just not. They mm-hmm. never turn out to be somebody I'm interested in. And so, and what does your therapist say about this? <laughs> oh, she tries, we try to talk about it all the time. I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> really, you don't want to talk about that with your therapist? Uh, well, sometimes I do, but it's it's. Do you ever th- get attracted to your therapist? No, never. No. Uh, she's. I mean, she's just not. But uh, she's an older woman okay kind of maybe you need a hotter therapist <laughs> <laughs> that's how i pick my therapist <laughs> is it really you yeah somebody, i go online you go online and look at their pictures look at their pictures on psychology today <laughs> i'm not sure you're doing this right <laughs> <laughs> is that why my therapist kicked me out last time <laughs> but did, did you like drop trial in the middle of the session or like, <laughs> no but i do make allusion moment. to like could i kiss you <laughs> She told me, she goes, you're so soothing. And then right when she said that, I kind of like looked at the curve of her leg and I got really attracted in the moment. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, what's going on? <laughs> it's very confusing. No, I am not attracted to my therapist. Relationships are hard. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it's not that relationships are hard. It's, it's getting past the initial ass-sniffing part of mm-hmm. attraction that I'm not good at. And why I'm not good not- at the ass-sniffing part either, but I'm not. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like this, I don't, and it's this really like personal confessional. I don't know how to uh, court. Yeah. Why don't you want to try internet or uh, online I did. Dating? I did it. You did? What did you, what did you try? Okay, Cupid? Yeah, and like match years ago. Mm-hmm. and um, Never really got matched with anybody that I want. You know, I just, it was, I don't know. It just, it just didn't work. But I think people, the way people are dating is constantly changing where maybe, I don't know, when it first started, there was a lot of filling out forms and interests and likes and all that. You spend all that right. time and then you match. But then I think people realize that none of that shit matters. And the Tinder just breaks it down. To, I like your face, you know, in a couple, a couple yeah. of words about the person. 
So then you can kind of like see, oh, they look interesting enough. It's basically the equivalent of picking somebody up in a bar because it it's the exactly the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's the sober, safer way. You really don't have to put yourself out there. Yeah. You know, no shaky legs walking up to the girl. But I think even when you are engaging with someone, I know this is completely a cliche, but you just got to be yourself. Yeah. Clearly true. you're a, a nice guy. You're a real person. Mm-hmm. And I think people respond to that. And, and I think most women, at least the women that any of us would want to date, yeah. would prefer someone awkward and weird instead of having this big game going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not the most confident guy in the world, I guess, when it comes to that. I don't hey, know. but you, you own a cool bar. I do. Yeah. Awesome. That's game. <laughs> you got game. <laughs> you just put that in your Tinder pro- profile. I own a bar, bitches. That's right. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Avenue A and 11th Street. Avenue A and 11th Street. You've Hi-Fi. Go- Hi-Fi. You've been going into that bar for a long time. You for must- a very long time. How has that area changed? It's re- You know, it's been changing since I, before I got there. Yeah. Um, you know, in the early 80s, it was like burned out buildings and, you know, it had kind of come up a little since then when I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, it started as, it seems to me that it's like any other gentrified neighborhood in that once it starts with um, bars and nightlife that people who don't live in the neighborhood feel safe to go to, um, it gets inhabited by younger arty people right um and then becomes a fashionable neighborhood for whatever reason you know because of that existence of that stuff it's where the clubs are it's where the bars are it's kind of because it's slightly ghetto it's a little off the you know it's not necessarily it was dangerous i guess mm-hmm. but um it becomes an attractive place to go and the rents are cheap and then and it's super convenient the subways and yeah and everyone talks about giuliani cleaning up blah 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 which, I mean, in that era, there definitely was a lot, but it was really that money, people wanted to live in cities again, mm. like the tech boom and the, the Wall Street, all the stuff that surrounded that and the tech, whatever, in the 90s. And I think um, Bloomberg really opened up the development hole where mm. they changed the zoning, where the Lower East Side now has hotel zoning, so you have these like massive 15-story she she four hundred dollar a night room hotels. I imagine that's good for business, though. Yeah, I guess. Well, it should be, but um, in term, yeah, there's more people around, so theoretically you should have. But there's more bars, and it's not. Um, you know, Hi-Fi is really a neighborhood bar. Mm-hmm. It's like a vibe of what it is, and nobody lives there anymore. <laughs> it just mm-hmm. seems like I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, no, that's not true. But but it attracts a certain kind of person. Well, but what's happened with the development is that the people who live in that neighborhood now are all there's no artist living in that neighborhood. It's um there's really no bohemia left in the East Village. Mm-hmm. It's like three thousand dollars for a one bedroom apartment. Very expensive, yeah. And you either have to have a trust fund or a lot of money income or whatever. So it's basically become a suburban it's become suburbanized. Mm-hmm. It's not really an, when you think urban, urban means gritty. Yeah, creative. a little bit. It's, or yeah, it's not an urban environment except that things are relatively close together. Right. Um, it's very welcoming to chains. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there's no it's not a place where you really discover there's no discovery going on in the East Village anymore, I don't feel like. I think it's become a uh it's it's just a it's a it's a changed, gentrified neighborhood. It yeah. doesn't really have those elements anymore. I mean you must have seen so many restaurants and bars and whatever else is around you come and go. Yes. Are you like the only one that's been there for No, no, there's a lot that have been there. Mm-hmm. There's places that have been around. A lot of the old man bars have been there longer. I mean like Sophie's and Mona's, 2A, those kind of places. Okay, right, 2A, a, yeah. Been there a long time. Do you know all these bar owners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of them. Not, not as many of the newer, not as many of the recent mm-hmm. comers. And it's also a culture now, the kids that go out, in the, it's just different kinds of people that go out in that neighborhood than used to go out. And a How lot more different? of them, um, they're not interested in going to a place and being like turned on to some other interesting environment. They want to go and hear pop songs that they can sing along to. It's not a, it's, I don't know. It's less, I don't know how to say it, except that it's just a not, it's not urban. It's, it's a very suburban safe, um, type of type of vibe and experience. It's just feeling like, and they want food too. Like a lot more kids that are partying. Now they want to go to a place where they can have food and drink. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I have a lot of parties that we get called about and then we don't book it. Cause I'm like, Oh, we don't have a kitchen, but you can bring catering in. And then we never hear from them again. So it's a lot more. It's yeah, it's less gritty. I don't know how to put it. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for me because I, it's like, I don't, I'm not, uh, not really hip to the vibe of this, the generation that hangs out in the neighborhood, but I don't want to like, I don't know how to say it without it sounding disparaging, but I don't mean to disparage any people just because they're not, they don't have my life experience. I mean, they're not, if you're 25 years old, the East village was never a dangerous place of, uh, in, in your, since when you were 15, it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, so safe. Yeah. So it's just, they don't, I can't really blame people for, the people who live in this neighborhood, it's like, well, this is where we live and we have this apartment. And we, you know, well, I think that's a cultural shift in general of like, uh, I think digital technology, people are less open. People don't wonder as much. If you're curious about something, you just punch it up on your phone. Yeah. And if you're, if you're in any kind of, if you're in your twenties and you are looking for edgy stuff or you're whatever you would call a hipster. I hate that phrase. But if you're sort of looking for a, you came here from another city or another part of the country and you're not, you're here to pursue your dreams, not to get, I shouldn't put it this way, but whatever you're here to, you're not, you're here to like live your twenties in, in an urban environment to find yourself. And that's what we were doing. I didn't have a career path. My career path got kind of derailed Mm -hmm. and you just end up like, you know, poor, yeah. hanging out in the same bar every night, meeting people, and like you go through this growing experience. That's yeah. not these kids have their careers full intact. They move into the city with a five, a six yes. figure job, yeah. and good for them. I don't mean it's like, but it's so it's a just a different. They're looking for different experiences, mm-hmm. but you can find that stuff that I was that with East Village. It's just not in East Village. It's out here. It's out in Bushwick right. and in parts of South Williamsburg and. Part, I'm sure in Park Slope or Bed-Stuy or, or further out. Actually, it's not really in Park Slope anymore. And it's not really in Williamsburg itself anymore, but it kind of goes out. But I feel like these the development of the city as being a place for wealthy people mm-hmm. has made working in the city more. So you have more office jobs because it's all, every, all kind of technology jobs and stuff that are here. Mm-hmm. So the people who are – the young people who live in this city define – 
what its nightlife is and what its stuff is. It's always been a very diversified nightlife. There's always been safe nightlife and dirty nightlife and clean and good. Yeah. There's always been everything here. And I think that's still the case. It's just that it's not all in the same place as it was. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, could you imagine the, the Studio 54 still existing of like having the hippest li- lifestyle, you know, the hippest club in the world being on like, time, like in f- 54th Street and mm-hmm. 8th right. Avenue? Like, what the hell's there? You don't go there right. for anything. It's yeah. like, it's Broadway. It's literally in the middle of the Broadway district. Yeah. Um, or the China Club was like a place to go, and it was like on the in the upper seventies. So there's always been stuff all over the city. Just mm-hmm. now, the East Village it's not really a very adventurous nightlife neighborhood. It's um, it's like what the Upper East Side was in the eighties, or maybe Chelsea. I kind of wonder if the whole culture is less adventurous. I mean, like before, you had everything at your fingertips. You can kind of just go and look and be like, "Oh, this place looks interesting. Let's go check it out." Now you might be like, "Oh, let's see what's on Yelp." Right, and like, instead of just walking into the place and buying a beer to see what it's like, you click on some random person's Yelp review. Yeah, and you get a prescribed mm-hmm. opinion already. Yeah, kind of shame, yeah, but. it is. I guess that's true. I'm trying to think of what I used to do. Yeah, I used to do what I would do when I was going, trying to think of what I would do when I went to another city and I visited a city before the internet and how I would find the neighborhood I wanted to hang out in. I, I would just wander around. I actually was, it was when I was living in Los Angeles. But, but didn't was, you pick a neighborhood first to wander in? Yeah, absolutely. So how did yeah. you find, I would. Um, I wandered into Brownies one time and I didn't even know I had heard of it, but I was just walking by and I heard music and I was like, oh, what's this? And I walked in and Quasi was playing in your club Brownies. Wow. And I was like, Quasi, I knew Quasi. And I'm like, I can't believe I just stumbled on this. It was so cool. That's <laughs> pretty awesome. Yeah. They played there a bunch of times. I love Quasi. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, actually, uh, I would get, I would either go to a bookstore or find someone. I would go and find the travel book for that city, Mm -hmm. like the photos or whatever, Uh and look through it enough to be like, or buy the, and, or if I'm in the city, buy, just like find the free weekly, whatever the free weekly is. Right. And that's going to kind of tell you where places are. Right. Right. A general area. Yeah. A general area of like the description of, oh, this is where the hipster this is, this is where this is. And then you'd kind of go to that neighborhood and then I would just sort of circle around and try to find a place to go to. Right. Yeah. So I would pick neighborhoods based on either the record store or the the live music club, like where the punk rock club was in town. And it used to uh, mostly was in like the other side of the tracks, kind of part of the city. It it's was so always, much more fun wandering into a place or just discovering it than knowing it's there and going to it. Yeah, it just adds a whole different. But it energy. seems like you can do it now, but you kind of you can see too much about what it is. You can virtually find where to go. Oh yeah, but you know you end up knowing too much in the opinion. Yeah, there's too many opinions out already. Mm-hmm. Yelp is a joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such a joke. Yeah. Well, businesses can buy Yelp reviews, too, so everyone should know that it's yep. not totally honest. It's just I, my problem with Yelp in terms of what you get. I mean, anyone who reads a thing that's, you know, these ridiculously horrible reviews that mm-hmm. are clearly based on the person being an idiot. Right. Um, but there's some that are like... I remember getting a review of Hi-Fi, and this is when I realized, like, I can't even cope with reading them anymore. <laughs> There's a lot. We got some good reviews too, but there was one. It was just like, I basically the person was like, I don't like this kind of bar. What was how they started, and they were like, how are they described? What it was, 
Um, it's like, well, then why are you reviewing this kind of bar? Who right. are you helping by, it would be like me review, being a vegetarian and right. then reviewing Peter Luger and being like, I don't like this food. It's, it's a, a way well, to make it about you. It's, yes. Yeah. It's kind of, and yeah, it's about them and yeah. it's not about the place. It's like, I went there and my husband wanted his steak cooked extra charred and they wouldn't. And they, and it's like, right. whoa. I, I, I think also most people don't, if they just have a, a good overall experience, they general, don't. they're not going to review it. If yeah. they just went into hi-fi, they hung out with some friends and yeah. had some drinks and, the and they people, enjoyed themselves, and the people who, they're not going to say anything. And the people who have these like Yelp profiles where they like review everything they do, mm-hmm. If you really were good at that, or if you were able to, it's like just because you had a lot of experiences doesn't mean you know how to communicate what's important about them to other people. Right. Like there's something about reviewing and. You gotta be a good writer. Yeah. And yeah, you you have to have an appreciation for, to do it well. I understand the notion of like, hey, this had a lot of people liked it, a lot of people dug it or whatever. But, um, I mean, I, it's worse and it's all kinds of journalism has gotten this way. I mean, it's food journalism or it's like travel journalism or it's all of it has kind of gotten, there's no professionalism in anything anymore. And because you don't have to pay because basically because publications have, they have less money and they can't, they don't want to pay writers. Mm-hmm. I mean, music publications are like the worst, like the music journalism of today. It's like try to find somebody who knows how to write about music it's impossible. There are just so many bad ones. I think in the case of a Yelp review for a bar, also the writer was drunk at the time. Would you read like a movie review? Like, oh, I went to see the new Star Wars completely drunk. You wouldn't read that review. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there are these. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, like. Uh, there's a also when you're reviewing a place, you go there several times. And you mm-hmm. review it. If you're a food reviewer, you go to a restaurant, you have you don't go there once and then review the place. You go a couple of times. You experience, you're trying to... Now, that's not... I understand that's not what Yelp is, that they're not trying to be that, but people are going to consume those reviews in the same way they were consuming a review of something that somebody who knew what they were doing when they were writing about these things. Right. So it, it, it just has a, it has a quality of it Yelp reviews have a quality of it of like the whiny, annoying consumer. Mm-hmm. If you were really good enough at this, you'd be able to write it for a living. You'd be able to do this. Like you're just an amateur schmuck who just wants to spread their good taste. You know, it's yeah, like, just because just anyone can voice their opinion doesn't mean they should. Well, whilst, <laughs> but at the same time, we all know that person who we ask like, hey, where would you go to dinner if you wanted this? Because they are a connoisseur of that. And those right. people, they're great. And yeah. if those, if that's all Yelp was... It might be cool, but it's not what Yelp is. Yeah, and food's so subjective anyway. You know, it is. It is. It's true. Yeah. So you've done so much cool stuff. I mean, brownies. Like you must have seen. You really kind of formed all the kids that came through there. Not only the bands, but the people that went there. Like you're like a life forming thing for them. You know, does that give you satisfaction at the end of the night? Um. Yeah. It absolutely does. I would I, I would be lying if I said that I didn't enjoy it when people, talk, you know, um, said nice things about their experience at Brownies. Yeah. That they saw bands there or they remember it or this, that. And yeah, it's great. I, I mean, mean, even my personal experience of just stumbling into that quasi show, it was, I think they, I caught like the last two songs and then people emptied out and I spoke to Sam Coombs, the singer, 
And I was like really enchanted, enchanted by one of his pedals. And I ended up getting that pedal and I used it for a few years. Yeah. Um, no, it was. And that's all directly related to you. It's. Um, no, it was really satisfying playing that role mm -hmm. uh, of the a gatekeeper to some extent, but giving a certain genre or level of music or certain kinds of bands that I liked, uh, having them play in my club, being the place where they felt comfortable mm -hmm. and like it. Yeah, it was. It's awesome. It just doesn't stay special for a really long time. But like you inspired so many people creatively. So many people probably met at your place and ended up forming relationships. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, that yep. alone is like, I love when people meet at one of my shows and then the only thing that sucks about that is that then they, they often stop going out. <laughs> and coming to the show because they're yeah, not there. Exactly. Yeah. They just shack up and never see them again. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's no, it's very satisfying. It definitely is, and, yeah. and Brownies has a really good reputation for the people that know about it. Um, I'm not a historian, and I'm not really into like everyone's like you should make a like if somebody wants to make a Wikipedia page, they can. Like I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it, which means it'll never get done, <laughs> which is fine with me. I don't, you know, like I like maybe where the history underneath, where like the you know, there's not as much notoriety talked about. People don't talk about Brownies as much because it wasn't it wasn't there was no fanfare about it. But that's a shame because as just as many bands came out of Brownies as did CBGBs. Well, no, not I wouldn't say as many, but and I would say that they, they there was a different time. It's not comparable. I don't. I mean, no. it's not Brownies is not CBs. I mean, CBs was. Um, I mean, a few bands. The came out impact of that it had was huger. I mean, the impact of New York punk rock on the planet mm -hmm. is bigger than anything that happened in the era of Brian, you can't, I wouldn't, you know, the talking heads, Blondie, the Ramones are way more important than any of the bands that came out of the late two thousands, like the strokes or Interpol or yeah, yeah, yeah. They just are. I mean, they've, they, I, I don't know the extent to which those latter bands changed the course of music. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that thing that happened in the seventies around CBs, changed the course of music in a lot of ways it really like it killed prog rock and birthed the return to straight up rock and roll and punk and um i don't know that we're going to have another one of those kind of earthquakes of because there's too much it's like there's too there's so much music history now yeah when i was i was born in 1966 when I first became conscious of music as a thing, it was like early set, mid 70s, 75, 76. There was only f 15 years of white people playing rock and roll. Right, but, right. You know, when you think of the Beatles as the beginning of modern, sure. if you want to go back further, it's 20 years, but it was like, it was Elvis and Dion and all that. Yeah, and like that's the, certainly legitimate. But I thought of like the Stones and the Beatles <laughs> at the beginning, Dylan sure. Beatles Stones at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I understand it goes back from there, but as that's what I thought of as the beginning. Mm -hmm. So even if you took it to Chuck Berry, it was only 20 years. Right. Now that's 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's decades and decades and decades of stuff to explore. So the chances of something erupting everything, the way that erupted everything, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. It'll things erupt into pop for a minute. It's like you have like you had grunge and then you had you had grunge for a little while and then once they had duplicated that enough. They kind of went into disco. You know, nobody's personal taste changes as quickly as pop 
trends do. Mm-hmm. It's not like last week I liked rock and roll, but this week I like. I still think sixty or eighty years is a very small amount of time to say that nothing new is. Or I don't mean that nothing new or groundbreaking. I mean the extent to which it can erupt and change the course of ever of of everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that happens anymore. I think it's too broad to be able to. Or, something that will erupt everything in that sense. It could happen. I'm not saying it won't, but it's less likely. <clears throat> I don't I think, think it's happening in music right now. I think it's happening in comedy. I think like some comedians are changing culture, but I'm not seeing it in musicians. I don't know what it is. I think it's just a lull in the music world right now is my, my theory. Yeah, is- I guess. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, the music business itself is in such a turmoil that the way that, it still hasn't figured out how it's going to move forward. Yeah. Know, the way, it's almost there. <laughs> it's very it's, easy for anyone to make a decent sounding record, and it's very hard for anyone to get heard yeah, above the fray. Yeah. And it's hard to get backing to be able to do the things you have to do to get, follow, to, to get known. Uh, it's so hard. I mean, Spotify pays point zero zero six tenths of a penny for streams. So it's. Yeah. Add that up. It's. It's exactly, but it, yeah, but it's more that like you can't, the plan was always, you never really wanted to recoup when you had a record deal. You just wanted to like make enough of their money back that they gave you more money to do it again. And, right. you know, so <clears throat> there isn't as, since record companies and owners of recordings can't make money off their recordings that much anymore. Mm-hmm. So the primary place up until 2000, the primary place you got money from to back your music career was a record company because they could sell your music. Right. They don't, they can't sell the things anymore. So there just isn't that back. You're not going to get the backing from like touring is where you make your money now more and merch, but you're not going to have like a merch company back you yeah. to make your t-shirts and sell. Like it just, so you have to come up on your own a lot more mm-hmm. and you're coming up through a much more muddy terrain where there's mm-hmm. so much more stuff. Yeah, and there's but there's on the other side to play devil's advocate. There's also a lot of instruction on how to do that stuff. Yeah, that's true too. There I, is, there yeah. is, but there's so much more to cut through. So much more to cut through, and I think that feeds into what you're saying about people in the East Village, the new, the latest flux being very goal oriented. They're there to, they're not there to wander around and find themselves. They're there to like do something, and I think that's a cultural shift that I've been noticing is that kids grow up with all this stuff that they could take in on YouTube. And then they're like, I want to do this. And this is how I do it. You've got all these, uh, a lot of kids that already know how to edit their own video and they're making their own channels. And it's uh, a weird way of evolving. Yeah. I think that, you know, the creative people in the world, usually the ones that families like kind of ostracize them or they moved, you know, they were like the misfits and that's what the mm-hmm. East village was to me. It was, or that neighborhood was a lot of, it wasn't misfits. People that didn't fit into whatever they came from. Yeah. And we kind of came all together here and yeah. we weren't doing all the same things. It just had a respect for each other who we were all, we're all snowflakes and yeah. you know, and well, I think now kids, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that many people under 25. Well, before <laughs> there was all this stuff like social media and internet, uh, stimulation, you had to kind of go out to find yourself because, you know, when they lock someone in solitary confinement, you lose all identity. We all need each other to figure out who we are, you know, because we're all just mirrors off each other. But now you can kind of stay inside and just watch videos on YouTube and be on Facebook and kind of form yourself alone in front of a computer screen. 
I think that's true. I think that's true. But I think you can, I think there's, you know, you're on the other, the flip side is that you're more able to have your not uh, normal ideas be validated. Like when you're thinking outside the box as somebody who's like the alternative kid in the middle of Nebraska, like that kid couldn't exist in the past because there was no way for him to know that there was anyone else like him. Right. Right. Um, until he went to college and then found this little, te- you know, uh, John Fine wrote this really, this great book about indie rock that was, uh, your band sucks. It's like mm-hmm. the guy who was the, the guitar player in bitch magnet and he okay. toured the country and he kind of writes about that notion of like, you were, you didn't, re- you, you would go to college and you find all of a sudden like, Oh, there are other people who think like this. Right. Yeah. Now you don't have to go that far to find it. Cause it's all, on the screen it's all on the screen it's all there (laughs) so you can develop a sophisticated worldview at a younger age um but unfortunately you're still a young person who doesn't know what the fuck's up so you're 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 it's it's a little backwards right because your brain is a muscle it needs time to develop kids can't handle certain emotions and situations because physically it needs to develop it's too weak a muscle Say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I feel that. I can hear that. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, I mean, but these changes are... Out of our control. <laughs> they're totally out of our control. And it doesn't, um, it's, I've tried really hard when I talk about the young generation, the new people in my neighborhood, all that stuff. It's hard to not make it sound condescending, patronizing, or that I have issue with them because right. they're kids today. Yeah, yeah. And... I don't. I mean, I I feel that sense of things are changing and I'm no longer the target of advertisers, so therefore I'm the older guy. You know, like you're sort right. of outside of the I don't think it came across like you were angry or crotchety at all. No, but I uh, it's but thank you. Yeah. But I think that there is I'm sure I did. But <laughs> <laughs> but it's really it's important I think to to remember that like yeah, there's a feeling of as you get older, the world the world slips away from you. Your right. understanding of how things are supposed to be kind of get redefined by another generation. That's mm-hmm. why people are like kids today. That's what that's all about. Yeah. It's like resentment of young people. And I completely acknowledge and recognize that when I was 21 and moved into my neighborhood, there was somebody who was in their mid forties looking at me and saying the same shit that I'm saying about the 22 year old today. Right. Yeah. And it's all cyclical to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that it's all capitalism based and because every musician, popular musician and TV show and movie, it's all in that 18 to 35 demographic. Well, they, there's a point where advertising doesn't, I I would, I'm going to guess that today's advertising is really branding. It's not like here's a product that is good and will do a job for you. Mm Mm-hmm. And it will make you feel better or it will do whatever. It's going to clean your floor well. It's mostly lifestyle and, and brand advertising. It's like, you know, Dr. Pepper is like for the other. Or this, You know, they're right, not really right. talking about the product. It's like just images of what you selling want. Selling a lifestyle. Selling a lifestyle, selling yeah. a brand image. Um, That's what Apple did so well with the iPod. They, they like did. This yeah. young, hip Exactly. Um, I forgot why I was saying that. What were you saying right before that? Oh, how when you get older, you're not in right, that. Right, right. And I think that lifestyle advertising, I think after a certain age, it stops working on you because mm-hmm. you know, like, I look at those things and I'm like, I'm like, 
You laugh at them. You kind of laugh yeah, at yeah. it to an extent because you're not, you're out of the age group that it's being targeted you're to. You're not moldable anymore. Well, now, like the Cadillac ads are faced, to, uh, like they put Led Zeppelin in a Cadillac ad or they put, like, there mm-hmm. are things geared toward my age group, but they're right. not really geared toward me because I'm, <laughs> I'm not buying a Cadillac. Yeah. Um, and I think that. And you're also young at heart for your age. So there's I guess, probably no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm young at heart, but I feel like an old guy because I'm always the oldest guy in the room. I feel like when I'm in mm. my bar, so I do feel like, uh, like I don't. I'm, I'm, I am young to an extent, but I'm not young in the extent that I enjoy and indulge in what today's young people are doing. I don't really feel a kinship with a 22 year old. Mm. I don't at all. Yeah, um, it's one part of my job that's become less satisfying. It's like most of the people that I'm providing this environment for are not, I don't really have anything that, uh, you know, I'm lucky that they, if they like the environment I've set up, I think I'm lucky. Whereas I think 20 years ago, I was setting up an environment that I was comfortable with and the people I was trying to attract were my peers. So like by, with brownies, by putting bills together that I, that are having booking policy and having other people put bills together with me or whatever. Yeah. We were, I was provide like, what would I want this bill to be? And I would create for me, and it just worked. <clears throat> well, that's pro- becoming less and less possible to do because what I want is not what a 22-year-old wants, and that's okay. Mm. But you are still playing good music that you would listen to yourself and displaying great yes. albums on your wall, and people seem to be happy with that of all ages. Yeah, they, they do. I would say not as much. I think my bar in some ways is not in the right neighborhood for the people who would really appreciate the vibe of my bar and not necessarily the people going out on Friday mm-hmm. and Saturday night in East Village these days. They're coming for the drinks. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. I think if they want a no-nonsense bar, they they will go to Sophie's and the old man bars. Mm-hmm. But if they want something that's a more like clubby or another tr- some kind of trendy experience, or I don't know how to put it, they're going to go to a place that's less just like a bar. Mm-hmm. I think I get a lot of these like reviews and people that say like, cool place, but nothing really special. Uh, and it's like, well, what did you, do you want a chocolate fountain? I don't know what you wanted. It's a bar. You know, we have like a really good selection of beers, a pretty decent selection of whiskeys. The wine is good. If you like wine, the music playing, the is music good. playing is always really mm. good. The, um, there's comfortable places to sit. There's a lot of space. It's usually not too loud. Yeah. Um, every time I stay after on the show on Friday night, it's always packed. Yeah, it stays. <laughs> What's been happening is that Fridays have been okay, but they die early. Uh huh. They don't go as late. Mm, interesting. It's weird. Yeah, but what but you- there's nothing wrong with being my age and not knowing what a 23 year old wants. Like, uh, there's no shame in that. Well, in a way, I, I think that's healthy. Actually, <laughs> yeah, it might be a little creepy if you knew too much about what exactly. a 22 year old was into. But it also keeps life interesting, you know. And uh, I'm excited for you. You've done a lot of cool shit, and you have a lot of cool stuff coming ahead. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. And you've done a great service. Like you should feel good about the service you've provided for thousands of people. I do. I do. I'm proud of what um, I've really uh, i've I've found a really amazing niche in life, mm. and yeah. uh, and I've managed. I've never really had to have a soul crushing job. I haven't had to I haven't really had to sort of kowtow or bend what I want to do toward an audience I didn't understand or like or care about. You know, I've always managed to You can never be fired. Well, you could go out of business. <laughs> yeah. Um 
I could, but, but you haven't, not yet. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, I've been able to uh, design a bar that I would want to hang out in. Yeah, and other people wanted to hang out yeah. in it too. That's the feedback I get from uh, a lot of the people that perform and come to the show. Yeah, yeah, and um. And it, it matters to me that the people who, and I've gotten this from your, from you guys and from others, now that I'm back in the doing events stuff, whether it's mm -hmm. musicians or comedy or readings, like I get a lot from people like that, you know, I'm always there when there's an event and I want the experience of the performers and or the producers of the event to be good. I want them to feel like they had the, they, you know, they had an environment to do their thing, yeah. which was very much what I felt at Brownies. I wanted this, you know, I wanted the monitors to be good and state, you know, whatever yeah. I wanted the experience to be. I had, it was like, I respect that you are, this is your thing, you know, whatever. And I think I everyone gets that. They feel the TLC that's put in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't have the, uh, I don't have the resources to give everyone free shit, but you know, I can't, I, you know, like, People don't drink as much as they used to, too, when they're older. It's a slightly older crowd in our bar, for the most part, and they don't drink as much as the 24-year-olds. Mm. So I can't do, you know, I can't give away as much as I'd like to give away. But, but I, you know, that's what I think what, I, what sells the place to me is just, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't devised in a board meeting or in somebody who was like, this is what's happening now. Yeah. It, it was like, okay, if I was going to build a bar in my basement and have a big rec room, what would I want it to be? Yeah. And that's what you got. And um, I get pitched bands all the time. I don't even respond to them. If I don't know you, I'm probably not going to look into whether I want you to play with You're us. You're over that part. A little bit, yeah. 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 And that's totally fine. Yeah. No, it's yeah. good. Yeah. We have to keep evolving as people to keep life interesting. That's, yeah, true. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This is great. Thank you. I mean, you. Uh, I'll put the the info in the show info, but yeah. everyone should go to Hi-Fi, 169 Avenue A. And not just Fridays, up. every night. Every <laughs> night. Become an alcoholic. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Thank Gary. You.